Today we begin Holy Week together, and our focus as a community moves decidedly toward Jesus and his death. We've just heard the reading of the Passion Narrative from the Gospel of Luke, and if you're following the lectionary that we're using in our uh, prayer books, you'll know that we'll read the Passion Narrative from both the Gospel of Mark and Matthew throughout this week. And then on Friday, when we're back gathered together here at 5.30, we'll read through the Passion Narrative according to the Gospel of John, as is traditionally done on Good Friday. And so we're bringing our focus as the church to the final days of Jesus and to um, dwell at the cross. And as we come to Good Friday, we'll do that together. And after the service, we'll have an opportunity to walk through the stations of the cross in this sanctuary in silent contemplation of the final moments of Jesus and his going to the cross, his being betrayed and beaten and condemned and then obviously finally executed. So this may seem, uh, the focus on the death of Jesus may seem a bit morbid to an outside observer of Christianity. You could hear somebody saying, well, why don't Christians just think about the great things that Jesus taught or the great miracles that he performed? Why this obsession that you have with his death? Why, why does it have to be called Church of the Cross? You know, and, which would be like Church of the Gallows or Church of the Lethal Injection. Sounds really upbeat and great. Why this? And, and why did the gospel spend so much time narrating these final moments of, of Jesus' life and leading to his crucifixion? Why is it that somebody like Paul, who you, you all say is a leader in the church, why does he say that he resolves to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified? And these are really fair questions, and they're important questions. They're critical questions. If we don't understand the answer to those questions, then we really fail to understand the heart of Christianity and the heart behind what Jesus, who Jesus is and what he came to do. Our focus on the death of Jesus during Holy Week, but also a focus, it's a focus we accentuate during Holy Week, but it's a focus that really does define the Christian life every day of our lives. At its core, it's an act of obedience. As we'll see today, Jesus urges us to dwell upon his death, and he does so in the context of a meal, the meal that he shares with his disciples on the night that he is betrayed, the night before he actually goes to the cross. This meal, this Last Supper, is the climactic meal in our series, Meals with Jesus, on, uh, out of Luke's Gospel. It's a meal at which Jesus is the host, where up to this point Jesus has been the guest. It's a meal that we continue to embrace and participate in, in the church, in what we call the Eucharist, or communion, or the Lord's Supper. And think for a moment, Last Suppers are a bit like an end-of-the-season banquet for a high school basketball team. Or like a last meal that you have with your friends overseas that you've been serving with together before you return home to your home countries. They're a time of reflection. They're a time of speaking the important things, of saying what matters, and of getting down to the central issues. And this is a meal in which Jesus does just that, this last supper that he enjoys with his disciples. And it speaks loudly both by symbolic action and by... Uh, the actual words that Jesus uses in this meal in Luke 22. And so we want to look briefly at both of those, both at the symbolic action of this meal and at the words. So first, the symbolic action. The time that the meal takes place, Luke 22, 7, he says, Luke says, Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. 
It was Passover time. So this wasn't an ordinary supper time. This was the highest moment in the Jewish year, this Passover celebration. Quick review, original Passover, Exodus 12, took place on the night that God's people were rescued from slavery in Egypt. This was the night of the final and tenth plague when the angel of death passed through Egypt and caused the death of the firstborn in each Egyptian household, but passed over the Israelites' households because they had been marked with the blood of the Passover lamb that had been sacrificed or killed. And they had marked the blood on their doorposts and on the lintel so that the angel of death knew to pass over those households. And as a result of that plague, God's people were liberated from their bondage in Egypt and set free. In Jesus' day, many hundreds of years after the original Passover, over a thousand years after that, the Passover had developed to be not just a rushed meal, as it was depicted in Exodus 12 and 13, but into a meal that was shared by Jewish families year after year as a means of both remembering and celebrating and reenacting the deliverance of God for his people Israel. And it wasn't just a time of looking back. It was also a a meal filled with hopefulness as they anticipated the renewal of the covenant, the return of Yahweh to Zion, the forgiveness of sins, the defeat of all other pharaohs, including and especially the oppressive ruler of Rome. And so it was a feast that not only looked back and remembered, but looked forward in hope and anticipation of all that God would do and of God once again reigning as king. So sharing his last supper with his disciples as the Passover meal, Jesus is actually weaving his story together with this great story that the people of God were were living in as the rescued people from the Exodus that they celebrated every Passover. So it's a massively symbolic action for Jesus to sew these two things together in his final dinner with his disciples. He's gathering up all of the remembering and all of the hope the story that Israel is telling and living and saying it's now finding its fulfillment in me and in the impending events of tomorrow. This is going to reach its climax and conclusion. A new exodus is taking place. A much greater exodus is taking place. A much much more uh, oppressive pharaoh is being overthrown. And this is happening, paradoxically, through my death. That's what the action of this Last Supper says. And and this is not out of nowhere. Jesus has been saying these kinds of things throughout his ministry, showing that his life was now the center of God's action in the world and the heart of God's saving work in the world. If we just do a quick remembering of what we've walked through in Luke up to this point, a few things. He was redrawing the boundary lines, eating with tax collectors and sinners like Levi and his friends. He was declaring forgiveness of sins to the prostitute, who wiped his feet with her hair and anointed them with expensive perfume in Luke 7. He was announcing and declaring that salvation has come to this house because this man also is a son of Abraham. He was declaring restoration of the lost to Zacchaeus in Luke 19. Jesus has been making the claim that in him, the great and climactic work of God is coming to fulfillment. And on this night, with his disciples... And this symbolic action of his last supper with Passover woven together. He's saying that the hope that you have and are longing for, for covenant renewal, well, that's coming through me. 
and through my death. Now, he said all of this in many ways without words at this point. But that's the heart of the symbolic action. So let's look at the words secondly then. And say, what does Jesus actually say? At a Passover meal, the host of the dinner, the head of the household, would interpret the meal in relationship to the deliverance of the people of God out of Exodus. And would speak about the unleavened bread, the wine, the bitter herbs, and point to elements of this story that people knew. In fact, in the Passover meal, when the second, there were four cups of wine, when the second cup of wine came around, the youngest son was supposed to ask, Father, why is it that we do this on this night? Why is this night different from every other night? And that would be the cue for the father then to recount the story of redemption in the Exodus by pointing to the elements at the table. Similarly then, obviously, Jesus now reconstituting the family with his apostles is now beginning to interpret the elements of the meal in relation not to God's redemptive acts long ago, but to the redemptive acts that will take place on the next day. And so he says, this is my body. He takes the bread He blesses it, he breaks it, and then he gives it. You know when that pattern is repeated or where it comes up first in Luke's gospel? It's in chapter 9, when Jesus feeds the 5,000, taking, blessing, breaking, and giving to the crowds that had gathered around. Jesus miraculously sustaining life. And what he says in verse 19 is, this is my body which is given for you. He foretells of his death on the next day and says that my death, the giving of my body, is going to become the source of life for you. And he goes through all that we heard read in the Passion narrative tonight. The alienation, the rejection, the mocking, the betrayal, the shameful and painful death. And he goes through all of it for us. He does it for you and for me. He substitutes his life for our lives. And he says, this is my body. And that's what he's saying to his disciples. You're going to be sustained in your life through the giving of myself in my body tomorrow. And then he says about the cup, he says in verse 20, this cup is poured out for you. This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Jesus is saying that through his shed blood, a new covenant is being inaugurated. A covenant is a relational reality that binds God and humanity together in a relationship of love and fidelity. It it meant rescue, as in the case of the Exodus, and provision, and Yahweh's victory, God's victory. And it meant forgiveness of sins. Israel's clearest passage on their new covenant hopes, which comes out of Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah, in chapter 31, ends with these words, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. The establishment of a covenant between God and his people always included deliverance and forgiveness. These were the hopes of Passover. And Jesus is saying that the deliverance The victory of God that manifests itself in the rescue of his people and the forgiveness of sins on which this new covenant is based would be established, again paradoxically, by his shed blood, by apparent rejection and defeat tomorrow, symbolized by the wine in the cup at this Passover meal. Think for just a moment about the role of blood in bringing about deliverance and forgiveness in that first Sinai covenant. 
The Passover lamb had to be slaughtered. And the blood put on the doorposts so the people of God could be passed over. Deliverance through blood in a very real sense. A few chapters later, after they've heard from God on the mountain at Sinai, we're told that this new covenant, or this this old covenant, the Sinai covenant, was established by the blood of the covenant in Exodus 24, 8. They had heard the law. They had offered up sacrifices. And then Moses takes the blood of the oxen that had been sacrificed in this ratifying of the covenant ceremony and actually throws it out over the people and covers them in the blood. Later, Jewish scholars in the Targums would say that this was an atoning work. That this somehow covered the sins of the people to enable them to enter into the relationship with the God who had delivered them through the Passover lamb. When Jesus says, this, is the, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood, Jesus is saying that what's going to happen tomorrow is the means by which you will be delivered and it is the means by which you will be forgiven. And it's for you. Note that in verse 20. This cup that is poured out for you. All that I'm about to go through is for you. That you might be rescued. That you might be forgiven. And then he says, back to the bread for just a moment. Do this in remembrance of me. When they celebrated Passover, they were both remembering and also anticipating God's great coming action. But Jesus says, my people are not going to be marked by the celebration of Passover, but they're going to be marked by the celebration of my supper, of this meal which doesn't just look back or look even forward to the coming of the Messiah, but actually recollects and remembers the great and climactic events of my rescue for you. I want you to come together and share this meal regularly. This word for remembrance, anamnesis, a lot of theological ink that's spilt about what exactly this means, but we know that it means more than just a cognitive recollection. That somehow in the remembrance of God's great climactic action, that God would also be strengthening his people in the present and for the future. This kind of recollection of what God has done and this reenactment in the meal would be a means by which God would strengthen the faith and identity of his people. And that's the Eucharist. The sacrament of Jesus' body and blood symbolized in the bread and wine. So I want to end where we began. Why do we focus as the church, and in particular in this week, on Jesus' death? Because Jesus commands us to at his last supper. But why does Jesus command us to focus on his death? Why does he say, do this in remembrance of me? It's because of the interpretation that Jesus has given of his death in the Last Supper. That it's in my death that you see the radical love of God displayed for you. It's in my death that you see just how far God would go to rescue you from the place that you were in. It's in my death that you see uh, just how much God's mercy wants to bring forgiveness to you in your life. And in remembering this, in placing this at the center of the church which we obey his call to remember as we celebrate 
the Lord's Supper week after week when we gather together. We place his death at the center of our worship because in that, Jesus knows that God will be magnified and glorified as the loving, gracious, compassionate, and merciful Father that he is. And that Jesus himself will be magnified and glorified as the gracious, loving, forgiving elder brother that he is in the family of God's people. And God knows just how easy it is for us to get distracted. We start to focus on our issues, on our problems, on how much we have to do, on exactly what God wants us to do. And God's saying, you know what? At the very heart of this whole thing is not what you do for me. It's what I've done for you. And so I'm giving you this meal so that you'll keep remembering my death because as you remember my death, you'll remember just how far I've gone for you. And it will keep things in proper order. You needed this death to be rescued from sin. You needed this death to be forgiven and cleansed. You needed this death to find new life in me. So remember this. And God will be glorified and things will be kept in their proper order and balance and you will be brought to a place of joy as you remember this. This death that saves. And remember this as well. It's interesting, in the next passage in Luke's Gospel, the disciples start to argue. It says a dispute rose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. I mean, how ironic. Jesus has just invested these symbols of bread and wine with the great significance of his death, and they start to fight one another over who's the greatest. I think that shows us a second reason why Jesus puts his death at the center. It's not just to reveal the greatness of God to us, but it's also to uphold to us the pathway of the cross as the way of life, as his brothers and sisters, as his body in the world. He knows the reality of pride. He knows the reality in which we want the attention of the world and we want the praise of our, of our colleagues or our peers. And Jesus says, no, remember my death. Remember it, uphold it, put it in the front and center in your worship in order that you might remember that this is the way you too are to walk as those who have received this deliverance and this forgiveness. Elevate God. Remember all that he's done. And give you a model for what your life is meant to be. As you take up this Philippians 2 kind of humility and emptying yourself. To love as you've been loved. To give away as you've been given to. That's why he gave us this meal. So that at the center of our lives, at the center of the church, we would be constantly forced to dwell upon the means of our salvation, the grace of God. And we'd be constantly reminded to dwell upon the model for our life. To live as Jesus lived. And to take up our cross and follow him. Amen.